Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect and analyze the suspendus, the amazing, the suspendus, I said suspendus twice, the spectacular, the epic power of storytelling, and learn how to harness that power to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorev. I'm Kevin. You know, Kev, we talk about storytelling so much on this show, because that's what the show's about, and there's a quote that I hate. <laughs> I'm going to read oh. for you. What's um, a quote you don't hate? This quote I don't hate. I love Steve Jobs for the date in the universe, but so there's a it's a very famous quote from an epic movie franchise that I love, but the quote I hate. So in Star Wars, I think you've heard me rant about this before, but in Star Wars, Yoda says, Do or do not, there is no try. And I stand by, that's the worst advice you could give anyone. No no see, hear me out, hear me out. Let's say you're a father. Hey Kev, let's say you're a father, you're living in the suburbs, you know, you have a wife, you got you got a couple kids, you know, um, you're loaded, you're just you're just a you're just a fancy ass, fly ass family, okay? You picturing it? Okay, cool. Your kid comes home just in tears, just crying, and he says to you, you know, Dad, I, I didn't make the dance team. Uh, but but I tried my best. And you look the kid dead in the eyes and said do or do not, there is no try. We need to bring um, Wyatt Thompson back to our show. And you guys need to talk out. Do you remember him talking about like how much he, he liked this exact quote too? Did he say that? He did. Wait, did he say he loved it? Oh man, I think you're right. I am, that's a whole callback. I thought you were talking about the fact about his dad, um, which is uh, a fun fact if you go back and listen to the second ever episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie. I bring this up because I think context is really important for this story. I feel like if I rewatch Star Wars, if anyone rewatches Star Wars, you see it's more of an impactful moment, right? But the quote is used relatively in isolation. Like people use it in so many ways without any of the context, which makes it so much worse. And the reason I'm thinking about this today is because, you know, I've been loving all the Silicon Valley Hollywood shows like We Crashed, uh, Bad Blood, and um, Super Pumped, all based on like amazing podcasts and books and things I love. Like, you know, I love the Silicon Valley founder story. I love these, these types of books. And when they would start getting turned into shows, I was really excited. And in the, the, uh, the the dropout, the Hulu show based on the podcast based on Elizabeth Holmes. Um, and there's a very vivid scene in that show where she's walking through her new offices and on the wall she has this quote. And I think it, it reminded me of context. And I think the issue with these amazing, really well done dramatizations is it's tough because there's really no rules on this stuff. It, all they say is based on real events and then they can kind of say whatever they want. And I know the main points of these shows, if you listen to Joseph Gordon-Levitt talk about his character, I'm not a journalist. My job is to make you feel. So these scenes are written in a way to make you feel what it may have been like to feel. But people are taking a lot of this as fact. And it's really tricky when these are TV shows based on a book, based on the media's interpretation of based on what happened, right? 
And I think we got to be very cognizant and discerning for these things of what is fact and what is story, what is fiction, what is true. And it's just, it's such an important thing as a viewer nowadays, as we hear dramatized versions of real story to take a step back and be like, this is the version we see and we have to go and kind of do our own research. Well, today's guest, Kev, is actually kind of related to one of these stories. Today we are talking to David Siegel. He is uh, the CEO of a company called Meetup. If you're into meeting people, meeting new people, joining your favorite local interest groups or whatnot, meeting with people in person or online, you might have heard of um, this company and the platform it provides. Um, and for those of you who have been following tech news, uh, Meetup was one of the companies uh, that was acquired by WeWork and uh, was later sold away from WeWork. David happens to be one of the people who have worked with um, Adam Newman, the famous or infamous character in the Silicon Valley. Yeah, you know, Kev, not to give too much weight, but this, this episode's about resiliency. This is a man who was hired to take over by a founder who led a company through a pretty infamous IPO, a spin-off, a um, global pandemic when they are a company based on meeting people in person and now is leading this company into a brave new world that's hybrid. So, I mean, this is, this is a really exciting story because it's about leadership in a face of some really challenging times. Today, we are so glad to be joined by none other than David Siegel, who has an amazing story that I cannot wait to tell all of you, but I should really leave it up to him to tell his own story. So, David, can you start us off by tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? My personal story, sure. So, I started my career... Actually, even before that, let's just say I grew up in a place where community was extremely important. I grew up actually in an Orthodox Jewish home and it's the kind of home where and community where if someone, God forbid, passed away, they never had to make a meal for a month. Food was being brought to their house constantly. If someone was born, if there were happy occasions, sad occasions, the community rallied around people. So from a very young age, I would have 15, 20 people in our home for Fridays and Saturdays and go to synagogue. And it was just always surrounded by people, always surrounded by people who are older, younger, different, and, and it was very powerful. So that concept of community was a big part of my life from a very early age. From a career standpoint, I actually started off in human resources, which is like super atypical to go from human resources to like become a CEO. And there's a whole path towards that. But if you think about it, it's actually not that divergent. Human resources people focus on hiring top talent. They focus on managing people, motivating people, training people, aligning strategy with operations and, and, and with the people strategy. And I was working at a company called DoubleClick, which was a long time ago. It was the top internet advertising company, ultimately acquired by Google for $3 billion. And the CEO of DoubleClick, someone named Kevin Ryan, and I built a really close relationship and it was very early in my career. I was, you know, 24, 25 years old at the time. And then since then I left, I went to business school 
I worked for 1-800-Flowers. I became the, the president of Seeking Alpha, a large financial digital company, investing company. Then I became CEO of Investopedia, which is the world's largest financial education company. Um, and we, we tripled the company's revenue. We ultimately sold the company for a strong exit. And then Adam Newman and WeWork came knocking on the door and said, hey, would you like to become the first CEO, outside CEO, a meetup? in its 16 year history. And because of my community background, because I love community so much, because I've been part of community my whole life, because Meetup is the largest community platform out there with 57 million members, 200,000 plus organizers, over 300,000 groups on our platform in 193 countries. I was like, OMG, this company is for me. Great. That's an awesome career story. And you know, your upbringing, had a great sense of community kind of building into that. And, and it makes so much sense for your career to have developed uh, and, and led you to uh, a company like Meetup. Uh, but as you said, you are the first, you know, outside CEO of the company. So I, I wanted to get into, you know, what that is like. What is it like to take over the CEO position from, you know, the company's founder? That's got to be such, you know, a huge change because, you know, the, the whole vision, some of you always have to keep intact. Some you might want to, you know, switch. How was that like? Yeah. And in the book, um, Design and Conquer that I just wrote, I go into real details on it, but it mm -hmm. was hell. Can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yep. beyond imaginable difficult. And uh, I'll explain why. When you take, first of all, when you take over for a company and you come in your first day, and there are 250 people sitting there waiting for you as a CEO to tell you what the new strategy is. And you don't know anything. You just came in. They know they've forgotten more than you know. They know 100x more than you know. And they're looking at you saying, okay, what are you going to do? How are you going to change the strategy? How are you different than the founder, Scott Heiferman? And my answer is, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm just going to tell you some principles that are important to me as a leader. And I would share those values and those principles with people. And I could talk about how we're going to collectively figure things out. But what I explained to people is I'm not going to come down with the tablets and tell you what the strategy is for the company. Instead, we're going to work on a process together to figure out what the priorities should be, what we need to do more of, and what we need to stop doing. Because the company had imploded to 250 people, was losing $18 million a year in 2019, WeWork just wanted to keep losing money, keep hiring more people and hiring more people because that was kind of the WeWork way. Not really focused on kind of financial prudence. Um, and that's why they brought me in to kind of turn this company whose culture was like anti-revenue, very mission-oriented, but almost nonprofit-oriented into a, a sustainable and hopefully then growing business. But it was, um, I, I didn't have a good night's sleep I probably woke up in the middle of the night every night for three months and how much stress I was under because the first step, Jim Collins in his famous book, good to great, wrote the first step is first who, then what first you need to figure out who is on the bus, who are the leaders that are going to lead the company to the promised land and who are the, and, and then only with those leaders, can you then figure out what you're going to focus on? So I had inherited a group of, you know, 12 executives and many of those executives were, um, strong and they were very helpful to Scott, but they were not, um, they complemented Scott's skill set really well, but they were not actually 
the right executives to be leading many of the functions in the organization. And within six months, only one of the 12 executives was still there. And that's a lot of change. Wow. And it's a lot of change for employees who work for employees who work for those people. And um, employees went through a lot of, a lot of worry and, and fear and concern about this new person that's coming in. I tried to be as empathetic and as kind and as thoughtful and as transparent as possible. But ultimately, we did have to make a significant number of people changes, of strategy changes, of process changes. And some people said, this isn't the company I signed up for. And they decided to leave. And then we brought in new people. And little by little, the culture of the company started to evolve and change. You know, that's such an interesting story, this idea of culture shift when you're moving between any leaders. Something we've talked about on the show a few times is this idea of the organizational story that being the culture and how that does really start at the top and the way the company's changed. And becoming the, I think being the first outside CEO is so different than being the third or fourth because you are pivoting from the founder's initial vision, the roots, to being that CEO. So what were the biggest challenges about pivoting that story from that founding startup culture to the stage the company was in then? Yeah, the biggest challenge was, as I mentioned, just a complete lack of focus on a company's financials. So, for example, before I joined the company's holiday party, they spent over $100,000 on a holiday party when the company was already losing $18 million. You know what? That's just not responsible. It's just irresponsible to do that. The company was had half a dozen pet projects that made really very little sense, but, but were... Uh, exciting to uh, whoever executive had thought, thought that idea, but, but, but a lot of focus of the company was kind of going away uh, into the things that were actually really important. So one of the things that we did was we worked together as a company to say, what are the core values that we really want to prioritize at Meetup? And let's let those core values be the basis for how we make decisions as a company. And we worked hard to try to include dozens and dozens of different people and coming up with kind of our six core values as a company. And that helped to shift the culture because now we documented what those core values were. And prior to that, it was a mess. There were 23 core values that in the company or 21 values in the company, which who has 21 values. It's just, again, it's, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And, and the HR team for recruiting was using a different set of seven values. It was just kind of chaos and, and just very messy. Everything was very messy and siloed. So he said, this doesn't work. And the good part about that is once we aligned on those six values, and I can share with you what those values are if you're interested, then everything started coming into place in a culture standpoint, because then we just went back to those values for any kind of key cultural decisions that we had to make as a company. I love that because, you know, it's kind of like the values are the story of the company, right? It's that it's that story point you ingrain into your employees that like, this is the new reality. This is what you should be tied towards. And it combines everyone around that story. And it's one of the things we love because it's such an essential part of building and running an organization at scale, having central story values when you don't interface with the leaders every single day. Yeah, storytelling is so important. I'll actually share with you, if you don't mind, because I think it's powerful, Meetup's founding story as well. Because we talked about my founding story, but let me share Meetup's one, if you don't mind, as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. Which, you know, our founder, Scott Heiferman, um, is really an exceptional, exceptional individual. Um, Right after 9-11 happened, he went to his lobby and he looked around and everyone was just in a state of fog and just 
crying and wondering what's going on and people need shoulders to, to lean on and people to support each other. And, and he met people and they were people who lived on his floor for like multiple years and he had never met them before. And he looked at them and he said, you know, it shouldn't take tragedy to build community. I'm going to build a community platform that can build community outside of tragedy. And that was the start of Meetup. Meetup is now this June is going to be celebrating the 20th anniversary since its website went live. Then six months after um, uh, September 11th, not six months, nine months after September 11th on June 14th. And uh, it really is a result of Scott's vision and his hard work. So one of the things also that's important, Gaurav and Kevin, is that a new person taking over needs to understand that the soul of the company, the heart and soul of the company, the DNA of the company is always in the founder. And you don't want to just push that person aside and just trample on that person. But we made Scott the chairman of the company and we had Scott continue to help to build the mission. He and I met, you know, for breakfast and for lunches um, to talk about different um, challenges and his experiences in them. He would still take people on what's called meetup crawls, where he would take people from one meetup event to another meetup event so they could kind of really experience meetups in action and our, our mission of our company. And he was a part of, of Meetup for a nice period of time, you know, after I had joined as well. Now he's off looking at and building another company, but we have our 20th anniversary celebration coming up in a few months. And I've asked him to speak at that. And he deserves that, you know, more than more than anyone, frankly, including myself. We kind of spoke to how Meetup's own uh, story has uh, come to place and has shifted. But at the same time, you know, another important aspect to Meetup's story is uh, the WeWork acquisition, obviously. I would love to touch one quick on this is that, you know, Kevin and I, we read uh, in our book club, we had finished Bad Blood and right after Bad Blood, we read Billion Dollar Loser by Reed nice. Friedman. Yeah. So we read those yeah. two back to back. I think that's important <laughs> to notice. Uh, but, you um, get to side and conquer on your next book club, man. That's oh, all I have for to sure. say. Yes, oh, definitely. Yeah. And by the way, um, Reeves Weidman actually, and I just talked uh, last week because um, he read my book. And then he put up a LinkedIn post after reading my book saying like, this is a great insider story. The only insider story about kind of the meetup WeWork experience. Um, so he kind of uh, shared the book with the world as well, which is really nice of Reeves. He's a great guy. Oh, yeah, that's, that's amazing. I think, yeah. yeah, definitely. We definitely want to. Uh, we're very excited. We're definitely going to talk more about the book. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But um, so we were really invested. And I, I was really invested live when this was happening. I was working in the Valley at the time at a fintech working on like IPO uh democratization and so when things started break i was following it very heavily because it was it was such a weirdly encapsulating like exciting story because people became obsessed with it people yeah i became obsessed, obsessed with it, with it. They were the 47 billion valuation to 40 to 30 to 20 to 10 now it's like six just billion watching or whatever it. the number is it's it was crazy. such an interesting crazy. story crazy. Right? just watching it so i mean we gotta talk about adam a little bit we gotta talk about we work a little bit and like even hearing you speak, I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about the way you grew up, I'm like, oh, capitalistic kibbutz. That was half of Adam Soy. Yes. Um, so Adam Newman, I think, love him or hate him, he's an infamous storyteller. Yes. Like he's it's... infamous in the startups in a real estate market. And it, a re really, he was an amazing storyteller. So can you tell us a little bit about what that process was being hired? Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you learned from him and how his story kind of affected Meetup's story? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll tell you about my Big interview question. process because like, 
that was wacky. And what I like to say sometimes is dating is a good prerequisite for marriage. Like if you're dating and things are wacky, then chances are marriage is going to be pretty wacky too. So if you're interviewing and things are wacky, chances are when you have the job, going to be pretty wacky too. So um, the interviewing was just insane. So first of all, I had 27 different interviews between WeWork wow. and Meetup. Talk about chaos, talk about dysfunctionality, talk about just like a mess. And it only ended, they wanted to bring me in for another round of interviews after 27 interviews to have like a dinner with everyone to have them just like dissect me. And I said, no, I am not taking another interview. If you don't want to hire me, no problem. But I feel taken advantage of at this point because I spent hundreds of hours and giving them advice and looking at their financials and, and looking at the strategy, looking at everything. I was just like, I'm done. Either give me an offer or give someone else an offer, but that's it. And then they end up giving me an offer. And that's how like we got to move on. But in terms of Adam Newman, I'll tell you about my interview with Adam. So one of the keys for interviewing, as you may know, and hopefully your listeners are, are aware of this because it's so important, is to mirror the type of person who you're interacting with in the interview. So if the person who you're meeting with is, you know, whatever, buttoned up, old school, wearing a suit, whatever the thing is, then, you know, you ought to be more buttoned up and a little older school of professional, shall we say. And if the person is the opposite of that, it's just chill, t-shirted, just like, you know, laid back kind of person, now that's the kind of person you want to be. So my my I had a first interview with Adam. It went well. We talked about family. We talked about God. We talked about a whole lot of different things. We didn't talk about work much. We talked about like you know, just shooting the shooting the breeze kind of stuff, and that was fine. The second interview, I wanted to like wow him somehow because I was like, okay, I couldn't wow him in the first interview, so I got to figure out how to wow him in the second interview. So I walked in. And I'm wearing like my white button down shirt, a pair of blue jeans. So, you know, not too formal, not too informal. Um, and I thought to myself, would Adam be wearing a white button down shirt? Of course not. Of course not. He'd wear a t-shirt. So I see at the corner of my eye in, in this, in the WeWork corporate headquarters, this guy about my size walking around and he was wearing a t-shirt and the t-shirt said meetup plus WeWork. It was the t-shirts that they gave up to gave out to people after we were at acquired meetup. He happened to be wearing that t-shirt. So I walk over to him and I said, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm about to go into an interview with Adam. Can we go into that like closet over there? I will give you my hundred dollar like Brooks brother, you know, nice button down t-shirt to get your raggedy t-shirt with a couple of holes in it. Can we just like trade? And he's like, are you shitting me? And I said, I said, uh, no, 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 I really want to do this because I think that Adam is going to, it's going to really resonate for him. And he's like, okay. So I took my raggedy old t-shirt, uh, put the raggedy old t-shirt on. His assistant says, Adam is ready for you. I'll repeat that because of the stinging thing. His assistant says, Adam is ready for you. Walked into the room and he starts like cracking up, roaring of laughter. And I'm like, uh, why are you laughing? He's like, dude, where did you get that t-shirt from? Like, how did you get that? I said, oh, I saw a guy and we, we, I traded my shirt for him in the closet. And he's like, wow, if you could get the shirt off of someone's back, then you could probably sell anything. You're my kind of guy. So that I was, you know, impressed. part of the yeah. interview. That part went well. And then uh, he gave me a tour of his ice bath and his sauna. And, you know, uh, we didn't, you know, that, that was, that was also very interesting. 
Um, but you know, it was a it was a kooky experience, um, and that that just set itself up for more uh, intriguing and, and engaging and 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 fun storytelling experiences, you know, as well. You know, it's one thing to read the stories; it's a different thing to have someone who actually experienced that tell what it's like to interact with Adam Newman. It's such an it's just such an interesting experience, and you know, from there. What has it been like to actually work with someone like that? You know, uh, and as we said, he's kind of infamous, but nonetheless an outstanding storyteller. Mm -hmm. uh, what What are some of the lessons uh, you have learned from working with someone like this? I, Adam is incredibly ambitious, incredibly, and doesn't take no for an answer, and and there's no idea that's too big for Adam. And most ideas are not big enough for Adam. And if you present a financial plan where you say, we're going to grow our company from 35 million by 15%, it's like, what? That's not interesting. It says, how can you do something at a much, much, much larger scale and think much bigger? And that process is really important for founders to go through. Now, sometimes you could plan the big big thing, but it has to be planful and you have to do it with the right infrastructure set up or else chaos ensues. But I think that's one thing I certainly learned from Adam. Adam is definitely a master storyteller. I have to tell you, I drink the Kool-Aid. I would sit there watching him present, sitting there in this, in the, you know, when he present to the leaders and at WeWork and, and management offsites and things like that. Um, I was captivated. He's just a exceptionally dynamic, charismatic presenter. And when he talked about the vision around kind of also similar to Meetup, kind of building community and curing the loneliness epidemic, it really resonated for me. And on a mission alignment perspective, Meetup and WeWork were incredibly mission aligned. He really has a, um, a soul that wants to do amazing things and make the world kind of a better place. Um, I think he didn't have the business experience to be able to build the right infrastructure so that things wouldn't unfold like this house of cars that they were. Um, but his, his vision was there, his ambition was there, but he, they just grew so fast that the downfall was kind of inevitable based on how aggressively, you know, they were, they, they expanded. Um, so I think there were a lot of really strong positives you know, of learning from Adam. Um, but at the same time, I think you also learn from mistakes that an organization can make as well in terms of growing so fast that, you know, th there's a concept that, that fast is slow and slow is fast. And sometimes you go too fast, you end up taking a lot of steps backwards and it ends up becoming very slow. So, you know, you have to understand that too. Yeah, I mean, we talk about so much that important aspect of balance and constraints mm -hmm. and working mm -hmm. within constraints, especially in storytelling, because you look at Adam Newman, who you worked with personally, he was an amazing storyteller. He could see visions. He could, he built, he convinced huge leads of extremely smart people to invest and pour money in, whether it's his Mashiosi son or whether it's all these different VC companies or these real estate tycoons, these entrenched businesses that fell behind him because he was able to sh write this vision and tie people in. So like he had immense skills in, in storytelling. I mean, that's the skill we try to learn here, but it's so important to balance that with the stake, with the infrastructure. 
and we could spend the next four hours talking about Adam because we've all spent a lot of time in that world, no more than you. But, um, but we still need to talk about the pandemic. And we still need to get into your book. So okay. closing up on this kind of WeWork aspect, Meetup was spun off from WeWork mm -hmm. uh, during the whole restructuring, during mm -hmm. after Adam was ousted and mm -hmm. during this time where WeWork was trying to find his fitting. My mm -hmm. question here is, was, because I, from the outside, the two companies seem like a really good fit. Right. Was Meetup and WeWork a bad fit or did they get lumped together with the WavePool business and some of these other more questionable acquisitions? No, they they were not a, not a good fit. And, and here's why. There's a difference between conceptual fit and mission-driven fit and actual operational fit. So what I mean by that is um, the concept that, that WeWork had was Meetup can um, put a significant number of Meetup events in WeWork buildings, and then there'd be a ton of like energy and excitement and and interactions and connections happening in WeWork because of all the Meetup events that were going to be located there. But in reality, if you look at the numbers and you actually look at the data, the problem was that 80 plus percent of Meetup events happen in the weekends or they happen in the nighttime. Employees are not in WeWork offices in the weekends mm -hmm. and in the nighttime. So that's 80% out. Now, a high percentage of events happen hiking events, kayaking events, biking events, outdoor events. Okay, out. Many WeWorks were not right located directly near where there's a meetup. There's a lot of WeWorks, but the world is a big place. So like there weren't that many WeWorks relative to all the, you know, 300,000 plus groups that we have at Meetup. So many locations were not near where we work. If you actually parse it out, and then there's a lot of Meetup groups that are very niche, like the stamp collecting group or the Pez dispenser group or, you know, all the identity groups or breast cancer support groups. They're not like all, our largest group is about tech, but there's many niche ones. So if you take out the super niche ones, the outdoor ones, the ones that are not near WeWork, the ones that are not on the weekends and the evenings, you're left with like less than 1% of meetup events are actually applicable operationally to be in WeWork. And then the, we had like, you know, tens of thousands of events in WeWork, and so that's great. But as a company, we did 100,000 events a week. So it was a minuscule percentage and it didn't really move the needle for meetup. It didn't move the needle for WeWork. And even though as a, as a concept, we're both focused on community, you, you don't acquire a company for between 156 and $200 million because of a concept. You acquire it because there's actual tangible you know, financial um, benefits to being a combined entity. And there really weren't. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, and the very important lesson, I think, to remember as well, the, the story versus reality, there is kind of a difference between that when you're actually pragmatically trying to combine uh, two uh, companies or entities that, you know, seem to have a fitting narrative, you also need to look at how operationally, you know, they how well they can fit together or not. Uh, but as we said, we should really move, move on to other uh, very interesting stories uh, that we want to learn from you as well. Sure. Uh, what, yeah, one of them being, um, you know, the pandemic and how Meetup, as the, the name shows, is very much about meeting up in person. Uh, but, you know, the past two to three years have been such a time that that's virtually impossible for the most part. So how, how has that been? 
for you know Mita, and how's that been for you as the CEO of the company? Yeah, how's it been going? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when the pandemic first started hitting in late February of 2020, we started seeing in China 95% of our events falling off a cliff. 95% of RSPs, and we're like, oh. You know, that's happened before. There's been SARS, there's been swine flu, there's been other things that happened in Asia that's never come to Europe, never came to the United States. I'm not worried. It'll all be fine. And then we see Italy. Huh. 95% of RSVPs are down and events are down. And then Western Europe. And we're like, this isn't going to hit the United States, is it? And sure enough, one of the first companies that had an employee have COVID was Meetup. <laughs> and I shouldn't laugh, but we were one of we were the one of the first three cases in Mount Sinai Hospital of having COVID early March, like March second or something like that, super early. And then, you know, paradoxically or ironically, the, the the we we became one of the first companies in a WeWork. We were using a WeWork space to have to leave our corporate offices mm -hmm. because of COVID. Well, we all started working from home very early March, over two years ago at this point. And we got all of our team together and we said, what's the mission and what's the goal of the company? Is our goal all about IRL, IRL only, and that's all that we're about? Or is our goal about connecting? And the answer is obvious. Our goal is about connecting because for the previous 18 years, the number one reason why we didn't allow a group to become a meetup group is because they were online only. The number one, we turned down tens of thousands of groups who wanted to become a meetup group because they wanted to be online. And we said, no, we're not going to allow it because we're about in person. Well, we got everyone together. We said, okay, meetup needs to, the world needs meetup even more today, even more during the pandemic than before because of the isolation that exists because of, you know, the loneliness that exists, the depression and the anxiety that's happening. We need to make, enable meetup to happen. And actually isn't that easy because we're tied to different geographies. We had to find <laughs> an island in the middle of the Pacific that never that was listed as a location. I kid you not, and use that as the location for all island events because in order to set up events, everything had to be tied to a specific location within our tech at that time. And we rolled out an MVP within like three days um, and integrated with a bunch of different video conferencing platforms. And then little by little, we started seeing adoption. And everything started going up. Since the pandemic, we've had over 6 million online events, online events, over 20, 30 million people have participated in online events. Now today, as it stands in March of 2022, we're at 73% of our events are in person, 27% online, and it varies dramatically based on location. Like in Florida and Texas in the United States, it's like 90, 95% in person because, you know, it's Florida and Texas. And then, you know, and there's a big red, red, blue divide, actually, which is also quite interesting. And in certain countries like Brazil or others where COVID is still unfortunately stronger, um, it's a higher percentage that's that's online. But we've made it through the pandemic. And the hope is that the roaring 20s is ahead of it, that 100 years ago, the dual hits of World War One and and the Spanish flu directly resulted in the 1920s being this amazing time where people would have events and people would go out and people would party and people would meet each other. And it was, and it was, you know, known as the roaring twenties. Well, the 2020s is going to be that rolling 2020s again, 
because so many people are so eager to get back out and to do things. And, you know, I'm already seeing, I just was at a conference in Barcelona last week and it was just amazing to see people. I'm going to South by Southwest shortly and just, you know, the, the energy is getting back. You know, it's, it's amazing. And I think we've talked about, you know, talked about so many different interesting points. And we talked about how resiliency is really in Meetup's core founding yeah. story. And we talked yeah. about how, honestly, Meetup sounds like the most resilient company in America. I mean, you, you look at the being spun off from WeWork in such turmoil. You look at having to deal with a pandemic as an in real life uh, company. And we talk about your leadership through all of it. And, you know, Kevin and I debated when to talk in this episode, when to bring up the book. And the reason we waited to the end, because we wanted to hear these like insane uh, resiliency stories. So now, now that we've gone through some of this and high level, like we could talk about hours in each one. Tell us about Decide and Conquer. What's it about? And how did you distill lessons from huge shifts that many people don't face once in their career and you faced like four times into this book? I had always wanted to write a book related to decision-making because I, I just fundamentally believe that the key to a happy life, frankly, is making smart decisions. And so many people that I know have inertia. And Teddy Roosevelt once said that the best decision is a good decision. The second best decision is a bad decision. And the, the worst decision is no decision. Better make a bad decision, no decision. Make a bad decision, you could pivot and learn from that experience. And then make a better decision. That can make no decision, you have no learning. If you have no learning, how do you get better? So I've always been obsessed with that. I've always been obsessed with the intersection of business and psychology and motivation um, and just the reality that we each make hundreds of decisions every day. But I didn't want to write a boring textbook about like decision-making biases or whatever. I wanted to create storytelling to help readers and enjoy reading something and be entertained by, by it. And also in the process, learn a whole lot during it and provide these decision-making um, frameworks and principles, you know, and values, you know, for how to make kind of smarter decisions. So I'd always wanted to write it. And then when the pandemic hit, I had gone through so much and we were so resilient that I just was like, I have to now combine the leadership lessons with the crazy stories that have happened. And I think it can make for an amazing kind of, you know, roller coaster type book. And so far, so good. So far we're, you know, um, uh, it released a few a few days ago, and mm -hmm. it's number five in the uh, you know motivation and leadership Amazon new releases section, which you know is a good start. But it's about touching people's lives and helping them in their personal and professional lives, and um, you know helping to make the world a better place by influencing leaders. Leaders influence other people, and I think it's applicable for you know frankly anyone who makes a decision, which is basically everyone. So yeah. that's what happened. Yeah, we know uh, it just came out a few days ago and we just got our hands on it. We've started really diving in and we love reading these books before we meet our guests because it gives us such a good insight. And I, I, what I love about it also is as two people have followed the WeWork story pretty closely, it's such an interesting dynamic hearing from someone inside. I think yeah. you started off the intro with kind of an interaction with Adam, Rebecca, and um, it's, it's interesting because it was hearing from the inside is very different. Yeah. because and also not only hearing from the inside but surviving it like being yeah. able to survive that with a full company that's looking to you to be like what is going on and so that was one thing we loved right off the bat just because um it's that idea of okay these are the decisions i have to make right now this is how i have to figure it out 
and you're kind of like, these people are counting on me. I'm faced with these decisions. I got to adapt. I got to understand the story. And I love you. We've talked about a lot of conversation you talked about in the book, having that empathy that they're going through it, right? During those pivots, having that empathy for, for the first pivot, having that empathy for when the founder left. It's the not easy. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's traumatic for people who had been with a company for a long time and are afraid of change. A lot, as a lot of people are, there's anxiety around change. That's not a reason not to make change, but it's a reason to be as empathetic as you can. It's not even a reason to slow down change because you can't slow it down. The best thing to do actually during crisis and change management is to speed up what you need to do, not slow it down. Because I talk about in the book about being kind a lot mm-hmm. and the importance of kindness. It's unkind to not be transparent about what changes need to happen. It's unkind to make a change management process last for months and months and months of pain, but it's kinder to rip a bandaid off very quickly, make decisions quickly, and then move on quickly, and then have people be informed quickly, as opposed to people being in a state of flux for a long period of time. That's not kind. So, so we made decisions and moved very boldly and quickly, which upset some people, but I think if, they were, um, if it would have taken a longer time, it would have been much more painful for that. To close out every one of our episodes, we have this segment called Suspenders. It works like this. We ask you a fun random question that's unrelated to anything, and you can give us any fun random answer you feel like. Truthful answer or just a random answer? Any answer you feel. Okay, let's hear it. What's the question? All right. Question of the day. If you were a clown-themed through clown themed superhero what powers would you have Ooh, always a great question you know the 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 ultimate question of clown themed superhero okay wait not just a general superhero so i can't go the invisible versus the other one okay i'm gonna go with ability to use my gigantic feet to run as far and as fast as I could because that clown feet can carry me anywhere and help me to um, to um, to find other people to communicate with and build relationships with uh, and just make things as lighthearted and fun as possible because people take life a little bit too seriously and there was one point in, in about a year ago, I dyed all my hair purple just to have permanently, just to have some fun in life. And I think if you walked around with giant clown feet, uh, then it would just be a fun thing for people to kind of point out and say, what the heck are you doing? And nice conversation topic. Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key learnings we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week, we had an amazing CEO who defines resiliency as he talks about suffering company-ending catastrophes that he weathered. And now he's released a new book called Decide and Conquer, 44 Decisions That Will Make or Break All Leaders. Kev, what a resilient story. It's so fun to listen to not only his career story, but he also walked us through so many of the 
kind of really unique experience uh, that that he had uh, working at Meetup, uh, working uh, with WeWork as well. So so let's dive straight into it. It's just such a jam packed session. Yeah, what I love about him and his book and his story is that there's a lot of like really broad and bold and overarching themes and ideas and lessons, but also very specific ones. So something he talked about、uh, when he was telling us a little bit about his interview with the infamous Adam Newman, who you know, whose story we were obsessed with here,、um, he talked about this idea of mirroring and how important that is in communication in. Conversation, especially with interviewing, about mirroring,、uh, mirroring the interviewer to as an interviewee, she kind of matches energy, matches level, find those commonalities. Because as humans, when we tell stories, we want to make them relatable. So when you're telling a story to one person, if you can mirror that person's energy, get on that same kind of wavelength, you can tell more compelling stories because it's so targeted to that one person. I think this is more of an extension to a consistent theme that we've always talked about、uh, on this show, which is you know with the audience, you need to be speaking their languages.、Uh, and I think for me, another really interesting point that we talked about is how Meetup and WeWork ended up not being、uh, good fits at all、uh, to David's perspective, which can be very surprising to a lot of people because you know on paper. Both companies have this mission of、uh, creating communities, but when it actually came down to the operational side of things, this kind of collaboration that people expected didn't actually really come together. The merge kind of ended up not making a lot of sense, just from an operational perspective. And I think you know that's an important、uh, business lesson there,、uh, and also a pitfall of. Storytelling to avoid, which is, you know, there is a gap between、um, the narrative fit versus the actual operational fit when it comes to、um, two businesses, and that's something you know we, we need to keep in mind. And then you know, I think branches it out to this final idea,、uh, this final key lesson we learned is about principles. And the story behind principles in leadership, because when you're a leader of a large organization or even a small team, you set the principles for that team, and you need to tell a compelling story that ingrains those principles into your employees, so they can spread them and use them in every single thing they do. And that is the seed of culture, right? It actually reminds you a lot about our episode in season one with Reed Tucker, where he talked about how. How the Marvel vs. DC cinematic universes were really structured and framed by the way the bullpens and the creative companies were run. So it's just a reminder of the power of storytelling is that as a leader, you have to set very clear and important principles and tell them in a compelling way to bind people together behind a central mission. This has been another great episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. If you like our content, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram at lsptpod. Find us on LinkedIn, Linus and Plastic Tie. Leave us、uh, a rating, a comment, a review, and tell us what you think. Yeah, we love hearing from you. You guys are doing amazing. We love you. You're great. Keep being awesome, and have a good one.